I'm Georges Collinet. Hey, put on your dancing shoes, because on this episode of Afropop Worldwide, we shuffle along through the black history of tap dance. Black dancers and innovators built tap dance into a great American art form. So much American culture, good and bad, is intertwined with tap or just a shuffle step away. Broadway and movies, jazz, vaudeville, minstrel shows, dab was central to all. Delving into the incredibly rich history of tap, you know, when you tell it right, is the history of America, the history of race relations, the history of American popular culture. It's the central dance from the very beginnings, like even before there was the United States of America, but certainly like the main form of entertainment dance, but from the early 1800s through the end of World War II. I am Brian Siebert. Uh, I am a dance critic and also the author of What the Eye Hears, uh, History of Tap Dancing. Like jazz, the blues, and other Black American art forms, the story of tap has often overlooked or omitted the people who built it and expanded its horizons. Tap is born from community. Dancers teach steps to other dancers who add their own spin, then they pass it on. As we look at the biggest names in tap history, we reveal them as both artists, we deserve acclaim, and also representatives of larger communities. Tap's history is forever linked with jazz, and jazz and tap together could be transcendent. Duke Ellington called his concerts of sacred music the most important work he had ever done. There are rich original works that take Ellington and his orchestra from the Cotton Club to church. In the 1965 sacred concerts, the tap dancer Bunny Briggs performed the piece and David danced before the Lord with all his might. Duke Ellington gives him a great introduction. And now, Bunny Briggs. You know that Bunny Briggs is the most uh, super leviathonic, rhythmaturgically syncopated, taps the matitianismist. Thank you. 
We'll get back to Duke Ellington, but first, let's take a time step and get on the same page. First, what are we talking about when we talk about that? Here's Brian Siebert. That's a hard question, yeah. Uh... I guess a, a tradition in America of percussive dance, uh, playing music with your feet. It didn't acquire that name, tap dancing, until the 1920s, around the same time that the metal taps that you would fix to the bottom of your shoes when that became mass produced was in the mid 20s. And that's when that term tap dancing kind of stuck. But before that, it was called rag, like it's in ragtime, buck dancing, buck and wing, breakdown jig, sometimes negro jig, uh, juba. These are all earlier words for what I think of as tap dancing. Another way of answering that question is the mix of African diasporic traditions and Anglo-Irish percussive dance traditions in the United States. You can find, you know, roots for them in West Africa, certainly, and in Ireland, or um, the sort of Irish-influenced parts of England, like Lancashire. But what I think of as tap dancing is what happens when those traditions collide and merge in, in the United States. One history of tap traces it to the melting pot of New York's Five Points neighborhood. In the early 19th century, free and formerly enslaved black people who were not allowed to have drums carried the memories of home in the rhythm of their dance and in body percussion. In dancing cellars in lower Manhattan, they mingled with newly arrived Irish immigrants. The Irish had heavy clock shoes for working in mills. The Irish also brought a tradition of step dancing. It's an inspiring narrative. Brian Siebert warns that this story includes a bit of speculation. All of this is tentative and murky because the historical record of, of any dance form, but like before the, the advent of sound recording and film, is a bunch of words when the meanings change all the time. And then with tap dancing, it's the form of the underclass, uh, the lowest parts of society black slaves and Irish immigrants. So the record, there weren't, there weren't people writing books about this, you know, back then, right? Just, just to put an asterisk on everything that, everything I'm saying is a little bit tentative or you, you have to piece together lots of little fragments to try to figure out what the history of the form is. My name is Lisa Latouche and I am proudly a tap dancer. Full stop. <laughs> <laughs> Lisa Latouche has worked as a Broadway dancer, a teacher, a choreographer, and an original cast member of the Savian Glover choreographed staging of Shuffle Along. She thinks that the perspective many people have on tap history causes them to miss the point. I can talk about it being unfair, but I don't need to go there. It is so hard trying to get historical context in the past, when we have to read it through a European tourist lens with their idea of us not being humans. When you apply a different lens, the answer to the question, what is TAP, changes. A richer TAP history starts to emerge. Its ancestors appear. Eli,
tap dance is just not about footwork and tap shoes. It's about communal gathering. It's about the circle. It's about call and response. Somebody inside that ring shout circle expressing themselves and everybody on the outside imitating or vice versa, them giving energy to whoever's in the circle. And it's this exchange. So it's tap dance to me, according to everything that I'm processing now in my life today in 2022. Talk to me in a year. I might have a different, you know, answer. But to me, it's a cultural practice that comes out in rhythm. It can be used for entertainment, but that's not the cultural intent. It can be a form of expression. It can be a visceral experience, you know, for an onlooker. It can absolutely be some entertainment. You know, some of the vaudeville acts were brilliant. You know, they... Um, and it can be used as music. It's music and dance. Before tap got its name, before Five Points, there were African-American cultural practices and dances happening, if not well recorded. One example is the ring shout, the oldest surviving form of African-American music. Its dance is essential. You talk about the ring shout, that's a circular dance, a shuffling of their feet, It's going to be used for different reasons, for ceremonial, for um, embodying the, the environment around you, for bringing in spirituality, for uh, now you bring the ring shout into slavery, for they need to sing something as someone's getting whipped just to get through, you know? And you're in this, this era where you're not allowed to be dancing, crossing the feet. Uh, you're not allowed to be drumming, so you've got to put in your hands or you have you have ring shout um, practitioners will hold a stick and have this Charleston beat, really, what we now call Charleston beat. For more on ring shouts, check out Afropop's episode, The Ring and the Shout, on afropop.org. <laughs> There are other dances in the Americas practiced by descendants of enslaved Africans that involve stomping of the feet, such as Samba Jicoco in Brazil. With songs sung in call and response, it's easy to assume that it shares an ancestor with the ring shout and also tap. Brian Siebert explains that the way slavery was practiced in North America may have contributed to tap dance's development, but also makes it difficult to trace the dance's ancestors back to Africa. There are certain like Senegalese dances that seem similar. Of course, the record of that is also very murky to try to figure out like what were African dances In the 1700s, there's very little record of that. So you have to like find researchers from the 20th century and kind of guess backward. I think it's probably better to think of less of like actual ancestors than to think of drum culture being so central to all the cultures from which slaves came. And then that being transplanted to the U.S., where starting in the late 1700s, there were lots of laws against 
drums. And those were enforced for all kinds of reasons better in the United States than in, say, the British colonies in the Caribbean. And that is, is kind of one reason why you might have more of a development of body percussion called juba and of tap dancing in North America as opposed to the diaspora in the Caribbean, for example, or Brazil, where this didn't happen. White accounts of Black American dance from the 18th and 19th century are rarely detailed and usually uncharitable, to say the least. Without recording technology, scholars are left to piece together the history from these accounts and elsewhere. We just don't have the visuals. We have paintings and some writings that are difficult to read, etc. But, you know, in I think it's 1894, if you look, it's called... <laughs> Sorry to say this, it was called the Piccaninnies, <laughs> and it's part of what was called the Passing Show. But Thomas Edison himself recorded as the first video, <laughs> you know, and it's a silent. This is late 1800s. There's a video, and it's on YouTube. Um, it's been saved by the Library of Congress. But you see, you see the footwork, you see breakdancing, you see in 20, in like 20 seconds of this video of these three black artists, vaudeville performers, you see everything. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's just like a tiny slice of all that was going on. Still, pieces break through to the present. But there is also like documented history of what they called juba, juba dancing, or there's patent juba, which is this, um, which is now what we call handbone. That is related to ring shout that is related to its own cultural practice. Traditional Juba dancers did percussive dancing and, you know, hand clapping and that sort of speak. So that's another cultural practice that is um, a contributing factor to the aesthetic of tap dance. Contemporary newspapers record that Black performers were performing for Black audiences in the 19th century, but not in much detail. It isn't until the middle of the 19th century when we have a record of a black performer appearing on stage before a white audience. He appeared in a minstrel show, and his name was Master Juba. Black dancers were central to the minstrel show. I would say dance is the start of it. What you get first are white people doing black dancing. The stuff that's happening in these, say, these Negro dancing cellars, which is a mixed activity, that doesn't get transferred to the stage because Blacks aren't allowed on the stage for the most part. There are very, very few exceptions. The way it gets on the stage is white people imitating Black people. And then that, that becomes a, a musical form and a theatrical form and the most popular one in, in the 19th century. Yeah, that, that whole complex is, is the most popular form of entertainment in, in America through most of the 19th century, and of course it, it lasts, sort of dying off slowly through half of the 20th century. Though it began with white performers, like Thomas Stoutmouth Rice, coloring their faces black with burnt cork and imitating black culture after the Civil War, some minstrel shows featured black performers in an imitation of an imitation of black culture. Master Juba toured the United Kingdom with a minstrel show, but some scholars believe we have an earlier eyewitness account of the man. Master Juba is important because he's just about the only 
black dancer that we know much about from the 19th century, and that's because he became famous. We don't know a lot about him. Like we, his name may have been William Henry Lane. There's a couple of sources about that, or actually just one. And he might have been this dancer that Charles Dickens came across. Now, Charles Dickens, at the time, the most famous English author, uh, came across when he was. Uh, visiting America and he visited the Five Points and he went to one of these Negro dancing cellars and he came across a dancer and I can I can read you what he wrote. He says, uh, single shuffle, double shuffle, cut and cross cut, snapping his fingers, rolling his eyes, turning in his knees, presenting the backs of his legs in front, spinning about on his toes and heels like nothing but the man's fingers and the tambourine, dancing with two left legs, two right legs, two wooden legs, two wire legs, two spring legs, all sorts of legs and no legs. What is this to him? So you get that. And then a, a, a little bit second later, he, he talks about uh, Juba's laugh or not, or this dancer's laugh. And he calls it a, a, a million counterfeit Jim Crow's. So you can see already in that context, we're already in blackface minstrelsy and that's a, that's a known thing. Uh, but what's amazing about Juba and exceptional is he's just about the only black dancer that crosses over into that world. First through these, these uh, challenge dances, these are like competitions that, that people would bet on uh, against white dancers who were the specialists in what they called Negro dancing. Juba takes part in the minstrel show's sketches and dance competitions, but he also takes center stage. He also has an act where he does what he calls imitation dances of all of the other famous Negro dancers. Oh, they're all white guys except for him, but they have some sort of style that he can imitate. And then at the end, he kind of tops them all with his own jig. And the term for that I find poignant and powerful. That It was called a, a, an imitation of himself, which seems to like get at the stealing steps tradition of tap dancing and uh, how you imitate other people and find your own style, but also his weird position as a black guy in minstrelsy, imitating himself somehow. The reason we know a lot more about him, or at least we have more written about him, is that he went with a minstrel troupe to England. And the press there covered him in great detail. There's lots of reviews of those shows. And they're, they're flabbergasted. You know, they, they're, this guy is extraordinary. He's, he's, we've never seen dancing like this. We've never seen anyone with this, this virtuosity, with this rhythmic acuity. They even call him a genius, which, you know, is not an, a usual term for the white press to, to uh, bestow upon a, a black man in the 19th century. So on the one hand, he's clearly like this exceptional extraordinary individual who may have had a great influence on the form. Uh, and on the other hand, maybe he's just just the person we get to see that kind of comes out of this uh, half-hidden tradition uh, and culture that was creating tap in the you know, 1830s, 1840s. The dancers were already known and in demand as entertainment. Due to the nature of tap dance, Master Juba's show points offstage to dancers who would never get the opportunities he did. Lisa Latouche explains the traditions that survived from the 1920s and persist to this day. They may always have been in tap. I tend to go back to literature and scholarship done by Marshall Stearns, the book Jazz Dance. It was a lot of oral history. Anybody who's talked about the Hoopers Club There was this like written rule of thou shall not covet another man's steps. Basically, if I meet Ivory Wheeler in LA, the first thing he says, he's like, what, you know, what are you working on? 
or let me show you this, this, I've got this step for you. We don't call it a thing. It's not like we don't call it, I'm going to show you this stuff off the buffalo. <laughs> you know what I mean? We're just like, bam. And then I try it. And then I, okay. And then, then once I have the step, then whoever it is that's giving me something will say, okay, now what are you going to do with it? How are you going to make it your own? Well, I'm going to put a little turn on it. Maybe I'm going to manipulate the rhythm of it. Maybe I add an extra sound. Maybe I take a sound off. Maybe I add a little style to it. And that's, that's kind of how it's passed on. So there was this written rule. is like, if you're going to steal my step, you better get it letter perfect so you know what it is. But then you better do your own thing. <laughs> you can try on my shoes, but you got to put on your own shoes. I'm now putting on my wooden shoes. In the late 19th century, jig dancing or buck dancing rode the minstrel circuit across the nation. From New York through the South, out on the railroad to San Francisco, and across the Atlantic to Europe. As the 19th century came to a close, a more family friendly variety show was starting up vaudeville. show kind of comes out of minstrelsy as a more family-friendly version because minstrelsy is very male on stage and off stage and try to get the growing middle class audience women in the audience they kind of try to clean things up a bit and that's in variety and then vaudeville these uh, theaters all over america of the variety show idea which was not obviously just tap dancing or even just dancing it's uh, you know, singers and jugglers and comedians and all of that stuff but tap dancing always being part of that mix National vaudeville circuits of big theaters became a sort of major league of American entertainment. Its talent was fed by minstrel shows and traveling medicine shows, which might feature a young dancer to bring in the crowd for the snake oil pitch. There were smaller regional circuits and circuits by ethnicity, like Yiddish or Italian. There was also a parallel black circuit. The black circuit would have had its own shows, like the Whitman sisters were a remarkable group of black women who not only were in their own show, but, but actually ran the show for years and years and years. And lots of great artists came out of that company. Black entertainers like Count Bessie and Lonnie Johnson passed through the Whitman sisters circuit, along with dancers like Jenny Lagon, who would go on to be the first black woman to receive a long-term contract with MGM. And the Whitman sisters, if you want to talk about their heyday being in the early 1900s in the vaudeville era, first of all, they were their own entrepreneurs. They managed and owned their own acts, etc. They were known as the act that was dancing, just dancing. It's not like they had to have big singers and big and do a whole comedy show and da 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 da. They were like, you're going to bring in the Whitman sisters, you're getting just like dancing. And they became like top billing, a top billing act in the vaudeville circuit. 
Vaudeville was an attractive career out of the limited available options. So first of all, they were segregated. So there was a black circuit and a white circuit. And then there were acts that crossed over into the white circuit and could even be a headliner, a star in that circuit. But there were always some blacks who were able to thrive in white vaudeville alongside this whole other circuit that was just black entertainers just performing for black audiences. That was called the TOBA, or Theater Owners uh, Booking Association. TOBA, sometimes you know, tough on black asses, I think they, <laughs> they, they uh, joked. Um, or the Chitlin Circuit is another, another term for that. Through Broadway audio recordings and movies, Tap's heyday arrives. But American pop culture is always changing. I'm Georges Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide on PRX. That sound is Bill Bojangles Robinson doing his trademark legendary stair dance. By the way, a video playlist that includes the stair dance and other dances is available on afropop.org. Now, born in 1878, Bill Robinson began dancing and singing on street corners before finding his way into the stage, first in minstrel shows, then on to vaudeville, where he became a headlining act. His famous routine, which he premiered in 1918, turned a simple two-sided staircase into his own percussion instruments. Perhaps his widest exposure was performing with the biggest box office draw of the 1930s, Shirley Temple. But to black audiences who saw Bill Robinson performing throughout the 20s, he was already beloved. As the dancer Honey Calls explains, Bill Robinson became known as the mayor of Harlem. A little introductory thing. Bill Robinson was the mayor of Harlem. Consequently, you got this little speech going. The mayor of Harlem was a dancing man who ruled his people with a shoe. When he put on his boots, old trouble would scoot to people's choice. A bow jangles to you. No speech making, just a swing of a man and the ring of a tap so true. It was more than enough when he strutted his stuff to people's choice. A bow jangles to you. His motto of office was on to the stage and he promised to entertain. He was a modern Caesar, a capering sage. There was nothing his feet couldn't explain. To a swing suede public, he was really grand. Knew just what to do. Opposition, no chance when he started to dance to people's choice. A bow jangles to you.
early 20th century was the era of big reviews. The Ziegfeld Follies began in 1907. George White's Scandals soon followed. There were black reviews as well. The Blackbirds of 1928 ran for 518 performances and starred Adelaide Hall and Bill Robinson. It is the era of Broadway. Ned Wayburn, who was like the main white choreographer of uh, Broadway in the early 20th century, he calls it the bread and butter dance. Tap is the bread and butter dance. It's the standard. So as soon as you have Broadway shows in form, there's going to be tap dancing in it. There's going to be tap dancing in your review. There's going to be tap dancing in every kind of show. There's, if there's going to be dancing, there's going to be tap dancing. In 1921, Shuffle Along, an all-black musical with music by Yubi Blake and lyrics by Noble Cecil, raised the bar for jazz tap dancing on Broadway. Bend those legs out there. Bend them. That's it, baby. Bend them. All right, out. Bend them. Bend them. The 1920s started a vital period of jazz history. And as Duke Ellington and Count Basie were leading their bands at the Savoy, the Cotton Club, and the Apollo Theater, they brought tap dancers too. In the legendary Hoofers Club, an empty room in a Harlem pool hall, tap masters traded steps, continuing the competitive streak that has run through tap dance since the beginning. Technology begins changing too. Tap shoes with metal on the soles become commercially available. And it is now that the name tap dancing shows up. The movie camera and talking pictures emerge. And from that point on, we have much better documentation of the dances. Thanks to footage, we can watch dancers up close and appreciate their individual stylistic innovations. That's breakfast in Harlem. Most of the smart set, when they get their heart set on gold, low down. You will see Bojangles very... Like standing up straight and being on his toes, but not all the time. Like there's scenes in Stormy Weather where he's like doing a little sand dance. John Bubbles, his whole thing would run up to anybody and be like, drop your heel. He's the one that started adding the sound and playing with the rhythmic interplay accent wise. And really, it's like, you know, the way I'm starting to see it is he started introducing bebop phrasing before we knew what that was. And John Bubbles, you, you know, if you have one, two, one, two, three, you know, he it's drumming. That's drum phrasing. Do you know what I mean? So he started, how do I put my heels down and put the cramp roll down so that I can drop some bombs? You know? Which is very different. And yet, he was sporting life in uh, Porgy and Bess, the original sporting life. He can sing operatically. He can act. You see him in Cabin in the Sky, and there's one scene where Duke Ellington's playing in the background, and he's strutting. He's doing vernacular dance. He's not really tap dancing. Because he's just completely different artist than Bojangles. And then Bojangles, don't even try. Please don't ask me which one I like better. I don't. Don't. <laughs> Black artistry was on the move. 
but the white press at the time mostly offered qualified praise and backhanded compliments. Black dancers might have style, but it was said to be less skill and more instinct. Black tappers might be considered more authentic, but less refined. Performing opportunities were limited. Of course, what they came up with made it to the white audiences, one way or another. I know it's so, but dearie, oh, you'll never know the blues that go right through me. Fred Astaire, very influenced by John Bubbles. In his autobiography, he talks a little bit about some lessons with Bill Robinson early on, but he's not a Bill Robinson dancer. He's, he's much closer to the jazz tradition of John Bubbles. There's one story even about Bubbles giving him one lesson uh, at one point for like 400 bucks or something in 1930. But I think that story is less important than he was influenced by John Bubbles. And not just by John Bubbles, but by all black tap dancers that are innovating and uh, changing the form in the 20s in Harlem. You know, there's lots of stories of him taking up a trip to Harlem to like check out the steps, see what they're doing, get ideas. Fred Astaire was open about his influences, and dancers like the Nicholas Brothers speak of him with great affection. But as Brian Siebert explains, it's not as though he shared billings with black tap dancers he learned from. The movie industry, like America, was segregated. Just like in vaudeville, there were just black films. A lot of black tap dancers make it that way onto film. And then there are a small exception of crossover dancers who get to be in white films. And the extreme exception is Bill Robinson, who actually gets a role, like a speaking role in the film. By far, the most common way that black tap dancers make it into Hollywood movies is in an excisable number. So that there's a white character, and they walk into a nightclub, and they, you see the black tap act. No, a lot of these films are not great. So you like from our perspective today, you the film's crappy, and then there's this amazing number in the middle of it that's by far the best thing in the show, but has nothing to do with the plot. So that's that's how black tap dancers, most of them, get into uh, Hollywood films. But they're preserved. They're preserved. So we have the amazing Nicholas Brothers, for example, who never got a role in a film, but uh, their their numbers are preserved. And and Bill Robinson and a lot of other tap acts, Tip Tap and Toe. With the four step brothers. If you can stand on your head, be a clown, be a clown, be a clown. You would be hard pressed to find anyone as thrilling as the Nicholas brothers, as Lisa Latouche explains. The Nicholas brothers, they were called flash dancers. They would do the flips and the splits, which is also a part of the greater aesthetic of, of tap. It was all, it, they, they all did everything. In the Gene Kelly picture, The Pirate, Kelly dances alongside two acrobatic dancers. The song's melody and message would be recycled four years later in Singing in the Rain, performed by Donald O'Connor. While O'Connor is funny, the Nicholas brothers are a marvel.
In stormy weather, they pop up from the audience of the Cap Calloway show and perform a supersized rendition of Bill Robinson's stair dance. They leap over each other down a giant staircase, landing into the splits, rising with just the strength of their legs. But Hollywood didn't offer many opportunities for black dancers, especially black women like Jenny Legon, whom we mentioned earlier, as Lisa explains. She also was the first black woman to ever be signed with an MGM contract. Really, if you really listen to some of her interviews, she talks about how eventually that contract, because she could only play maids and etc., right? Or some really racialized scenes. They eventually found more that they can do with a star that they could use that she trained called Eleanor Powell. These rules for tap dancers became a burden when later generations would look back at them. Despite the artistry on display and the breakthrough the films may have represented at the time. Look here, will you go if I show you a brand new way how to go upstairs? How could there be a new way to go upstairs? Now you just watch. I went to the market for to get some beef. And the beef's so tough, and I couldn't get enough. I paid five dollars of a great big hog, and the hog so fat, and I couldn't get back. Those Shirley Temple movies, it's a big deal because she's the number one box office star. And, and beloved, right? So by association, he becomes beloved too. And there's some cool stories about her learning from Bill Robinson, where he teaches her, I think the phrase is like, how to hook up her feet to her ears. And, and those movies become important. They're, they're hard to watch now because Bill Robinson's role is, is uh, something of the Uncle Tom. Uh, although, you know, on the other hand, he's, he's responsible for the child. You, you can put them in a context. The fact that he was holding the hand of a white girl got a lot of those films not shown in the South. So that, that antagonistic reaction tells you that they were a kind of progress. But pop culture's one constant is change, and tap starts to slip from its place. There's lots of reasons why tap dancing falls out of the center of American popular culture. A lot of it is the music, so jazz changes and, and with bebop and afterwards becomes more of a listening music and the places where jazz is played are more small clubs where there's not a lot of room for a tap dancer, maybe not a stage for a tap dancer. And even the theaters in change, a lot of that has to do with white flight in that period. There used to be tons and tons and tons of theaters and you find a lot of those just start closing up. Broadway changes because Agnes DeMille with Oklahoma brings a lot more ballet into Broadway and changes how dance is incorporated into a Broadway musical. And so there's less call for tap dancers there. Uh, rock and roll comes in and pushes out jazz as the popular form. People don't tap to rock so much, partly because it's rhythmically simpler. But just because it wasn't as central, tap dance never went away. Children still filled tap classes. Tap dancers continued to play with jazz players. Innovation continued too. Jimmy Slide is one of these great dancers. Every sound is expressed through the body. 
Uh, his name is Slide because that's his specialty. He's a, a slider, and he uses those in like every part of speech. You know, <laughs> there are periods and commas and uh, exclamation points and uh, ways of elongating notes. Right, a tap is a it's a percussive form, so it's it's short. Uh, but but with a with a slide, you can uh, do crescendos and decrescendos and all kinds of musical dynamics, uh, and you see that you see and hear that in the dancing of Jimmy Slide. Tap dancers hide in plain sight, like Sammy Davis Jr. Sammy Davis Jr. Is, is a tap dancer at heart, but Sammy Davis Jr. also becomes a performing artist and is with the Rat Pack and does movies and has this huge profile as an entertainer. But at heart, he's a he's a hoofer. He's an improvising tap dancer and always had that. Like you do Sammy Davis Jr. acts, he's like he's got the shoes under the piano. At some point, he puts them on and shows you what he can do. Hey, uh... How about some dancing? I'm ready when you are. Well, just put your feet in my hands. You got them, just don't squeeze them too tight. <laughs> Vaudeville crept on as the variety show, and the likes of John Bubbles would appear on television in the 60s, teaching Lucille Ball how to tap with Mel Tormey on the piano. Dance opportunities became harder to find, so dancers found other work. Brian Siebert explains Charlie Atkins split from his partner, Honey Coles, and found new work with a music label out of Detroit. Charlie Atkins, amazingly, becomes the choreographer for Motown. So that's where a lot of tap goes, really, in the culture. It becomes the steps that the Temptations are doing and the pips and Smokey Robinson, the Miracles, and the Supremes, they're getting their moves from a tap dancer. What seems to have gone out of style, these black vernacular dance moves that are part of tap dancing, actually becomes the hip thing to do again, but in disguise, kind of. James Brown, you know, Michael Jackson was a little Jackson 5 watching those rehearsals with anybody in Motown, you know, rehearsing with Charlie Atkins because he's staging them, you know what I mean? So it's just, and, and Michael Jackson was before he passed, taking lessons with Dormisha Sambri Edwards. Outside the pressure of mainstream entertainment, tap dancers like Lon Cheney, Bunny Briggs, and Chuck Green expanded the medium. Thanks to the longevity of tap dancers, well, lots of cardio exercise, they could nurture the next generation. Savian Glover recounted their lessons in the musical Bring in the Noise, Bring in the Funk. Hollywood, they didn't want us or something. They wanted to be like entertained, see? That's what's different. Chuck and Slide was more like education, you know what I'm saying? They was educating people, not entertaining. Hoofing and rhythm tap is like music, you know what I'm saying? If you can do an eight bar phrase with your feet, and another person, not a dancer, can understand like what you just did, you hit. You know what I'm saying? You expressed yourself. You made a statement. 
See, hoofing is dancing from your waist down. You know what I'm saying? People think tap dancing is all like arms and legs and all this big old smile. Nah, it's raw and it's real and it's rhythm. It's us and it's ours. Jimmy Slide, all right, Jimmy Slide, along with like Chaney and Chuck, all those other guys, they was like holding it down. You know what I'm saying? As far as like hoofing, as far as like hoofing, like hoofing, 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 hoofing. I'm more like Chaney. I'm more like on the Chaney side. I like to hit like loud, strong and hitting. Chaney was like a monster. He hit the floor until he just out of breath. Chuck Green, Chuck's dancing, his, his dance was like kind of slow. Every tap was clean, you know what I'm saying? You hear every tap, and he was just like on the slow type, smooth, slow type, smooth, slow type, smooth type, slow type, smooth type. Buster, Buster Brown was known, well, you know what I'm saying? All the dancers was known for like doing a song, but Buster Brown, his song was like cute. Buster, he made his loot with like the copacetics and with like the hoofers. And he was like a real showman. He would come with like jokes, you know what I'm saying, for the audience. Then he could like also hit. His hitting style was on the light side. He wasn't like a heavy hitter or nothing like that. He was like light, crisp, you know what I'm saying, clean. Slide would be somebody you could like go to and he'll just have the answer. Slide is like our grandparents, you know what I'm saying, just mad wisdom. When I'm in the room with Slide, I'll be working on a step. He wouldn't tell me, like, you know what I'm saying, all right, go ahead, go work on it. And he'd give me this look. Another thing about Slide, Slide, his style was just mad smooth. And Slide could hit, like, hard, hard, and he could do all the other styles. But you know what I'm saying, Slide, yo, when he get on the floor, it's just like butter being spray. Just too smooth. Chaney taught me like to be just just to be open, to be free with myself. Chaney taught me how to do things like if the step ain't right, hit it. Hit it. Hit it. This dive ain't Chicago. Where's Bashiba? Well now, Jack, before we hit the big time, just wanna make sure I still got the touch. I'll show you how to play Like folks down a Nolan's way Show you the stylish fingers they have Ooh, what a noise they make Stomp up till the windows shake Start mixing, come on and get your licks in. Ooh, 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 that's how you jazz. Now, in order to get going, what I like to call sweet Papa Jelly's jazz, I need a low down foundation. Tap dance found new ways to flourish, following the formation of the National Endowment for the Arts, 
as Brian Siebert explains. 60s and the 70s, there is what we call the dance boom. Uh, mostly people mean ballet or modern dance, which got a lot of attention and funding and a lot of prestige in the culture. And some of that, some of that money, not, not a lot of it, sort of trickled down to tap dancing. Under the tutelage of aging hoofers, a new generation of dancers saw tap not as a tired old art form, but as a vital one. Brenda Buffalino, uh, she was she was uh, the protege of Honey Coles, and they danced together. And when nobody else was really interested in furthering his art, she was, and she was a kind of visionary who made made a documentary for one called Great Feats of Feet, and then found a place in the modern dance world to create concert dance, and started her own company uh, called the uh, American Tap Dance Orchestra, which you can you can hear the concept in the name. As concert music, tap found new venues. They were in the jazz festivals. You have the era of Motown, Michael Jackson, Jackson 5, all of them, right? Like, it was never gone. And the practitioners were always there, some of them just not really working. And so there was a time when it was a few people starting to knock on doors and ask, But then Diane is in Boston under Leon Collins doing the thing the whole time. Also in the 80s, the Tap Festival starts to emerge, which are these gatherings where tap dancers get together and there are students there and the middle generation and also all these elders showing up, having classes and performances, and it becomes its own subculture. So... A great teacher like Diane Walker can go the whole summer, going from Austin to St. Louis to Chicago to New York, all summer long, these festival to festival to festival. And that's where a lot of the dancers of today started out as kids and teenagers. Brian Siebert and Lisa Latouche. Dancers teasing out Tap's ability to express oneself, who they are, how they feel today, would become the public faces of Tap. Gregory Hines was the first person to start openly dancing not to jazz music. Gregory brought in the funk, and he was a drummer. But he came from showbiz, getting everything at the Apollo, and him and his brother, Maurice Hines, were their own act. He grew up in the business. And then he's become a drummer as well, and now, dude, He's putting that in his feet and bringing that to the stage. And then all of a sudden it's like, yo, we can dance to that music? Oh, shoot. Now we can just keep going. He grew up on R&B uh, and Tap had lost track with changes in music. It had kind of been stuck with 1940s jazz. Or as Savian puts it, I think, in a, in a book, like tap dancers weren't dancing to the music they were partying to. And Gregory Hines started to change that. In the 80s, his protégé and co-star emerges as possibly the best tap dancer of all time, according to Hines. 
Savian Glover made his Broadway debut at 11 and was nominated for a Tony when he was 15. At 23, he starred in and choreographed Bring In Da Noise, Bring In Da Funk. He's growing up with hip hop. He's growing up loving Eric B and Rakim. And that's what's in his headphones. Those are the kinds of rhythms and beats per minute and flow that start to come out of his feet. And the way he looks, like he starts to wear clothes that come out of hip hop and put his hair in dreadlocks. And he doesn't look like Bill Robinson, <laughs> much less like Fred Astaire, you know? Uh, and that changes the image of tap dancing a lot. And then in his Broadway show, Bring in the Noise, Bring in the Funk, he's doing a, a whole revision of tap history, looking at it as a black form and a form in which black history can be told and that black history resides in tap dancing. And that, I think, changed a lot of how people looked at tap dancing. Also made him a big star. As Lisa Latouche explains, even from Broadway, Glover demonstrated that tap wasn't just a theater dance. Once Savion Glover was here and this young energy, once noise funk hit Broadway and you started seeing him on TV and he started working with Spike Lee, etc. As now a teenager, I said, well, this is what I want to do. So again, it's just like, it was stayed very much moving, maybe as an undercurrent, but it never stopped moving. Dance legend Diane Walker wrote in Dance Magazine, tap dance is a form once dominated by men. However, today it is dominated by women. A new generation of black women artists is emerging from the wings. For a long time though, people were only paying attention to Saving Glover and that has receded I think in recent years. So people are paying more attention to Ayadele Cassell and Dormisha and Jason Samuel Smith, Jared Grimes, who's choreographing this tap dance kid revival, Michaela Lerman. There's there's many, many tap dances out there. And lately, I feel like more attention is being paid to more of the field. Tap is central to a number of new Broadway shows, like the Tap Dance Kid or Paradise Square, which tells the history of tap. Ayodele Cassell is choreographing a revival of Funny Girl. Elsewhere, videos of Chloe Arnold and her syncopated ladies who dance to pop music like Beyoncé are viewed by millions. Michela Marino-Lerman keeps the jazz tap tradition alive. All right, shall I set it? Funding for Our Pop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. And from PRX affiliate stations around the U.S. And thank you for supporting your public radio station. Thanks to Brian Siebert, author of What the Eye Hears, A History of Tap Dancing, Lisa Latouche and Diane Walker for their help with this program. And while tap is maybe the one dance you can do a radio show on, check out afropop.org to see these great dancers we talked about today.
You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at AfropopWW. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research and production for this program by Ben Richmond. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, including radio programs and our Afropop Close-Up podcast series. And don't forget to join us next week for another edition of Afropop Worldwide. Our chief audio engineer is Michael Jones. This program was mixed at Studio 44 in Brooklyn by Zubin Hansler. Additional engineering by GC from the syncopated lair in Washington, D.C. Manning Air and C.C. Smith edit our website, afropop.org. Our director of new media is Mukwai Wabi Siolwe. And I'm Georges Collinet.